Welcome to another inspirational teaching by Pastor Mike Foreman, Senior Pastor of the First Baptist Church of Level Plains. For more information about Pastor Mike and the church, please visit our website at www.fbclp.life. Let's join Pastor Mike now as he shares from God's Word. Well, we're trying to uh, get through a series called uh, Character Sketches. And, you know, I could preach character sketches probably for the next 10 years because uh, there's some great Bible characters. And, and so uh, I want to finish up the series. We've got two weeks left, and I'm going to finish up this series with uh, probably one of the most uh, known Bible characters outside of Jesus, and that's Paul. And so the Apostle Paul is just an amazing guy. And when you begin to look at Paul's life, it really... His conversion begins for us in Acts chapter 9, a very familiar text. And so you can begin to turn there, Acts chapter 9. But Paul, you know, uh, is that gentleman that uh, wrote half of our New Testament. And uh, as we begin to see how God inspired him to write and the Holy Scriptures that we've been given through his writing or emuensis as he had a secretary or somebody jot those down for him as we look at that truth, I'm just amazed that God would take a man like Paul who hated the church and make him one of the strongest figures in the foundation of the church. And so that's important. I think that that helps us to understand, listen, God can do something in your life. If he can do something in his life, he can do something in your life. And I hope that you'll take away today that very truth. And I noticed that we titled today's message, Amazing Grace. I should notice that. I'm the one that titled it. But anyway, we, I'm titling Amazing Grace because that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about God's amazing grace through the life of Paul, because what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the beginning of Paul's ministry in Acts 9, and then we're going to look at the end of Paul's life, and we're going to see, does Paul think it's worth it? You know, what does Paul say at the end of his life? Was, was the journey a great journey? Was the was a journey a, a successful journey? And we'll see at the end of his life that uh, Paul gives us some solid truth, I think, that we ought to look at as well. So today, looking at Paul and Amazing Grace, let's read verses 1 through 9, and then I'll uh, share some thoughts with you this morning. Listen to the scripture. It says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him, he says, to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found anyone who were there of the way, whether man or woman, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard the voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Now, if you have a new King James, King James, that line's going to be in there. If you don't have that translation, it's not going to be there because in the original text, in many of them, that line is not there until chapter 26 when Paul is retelling the story and when he's telling what's happened to him, he adds that line in. So it appears that then the, the, the writers of the New Testament, uh, or excuse me, New King James and King James, went back and inserted that here in the story. But in the original text, we don't find that line in this particular text, although it's very biblical. So if you don't have it in your text, and I say that because some of you don't, you're probably wondering, why am I reading that? So uh, moving on, by the way, verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, 
what do you want me to do? (laughs) Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Do you think this impacted Paul's life? Certainly so. Paul's life was impacted immensely by what God did here in this text. As we begin to see Paul traveling, I want you to look at verses 1 and 2 with me because I think it's very crucial you understand his sort of sorted background. You sort of understand where Paul has been. And I'm going to simply call this just Paul's persecution of the church. You may be familiar with what he was doing, but if you look at the text, then Paul was still breathing. Paul has got this firebrand in him that cannot rest. Paul is sold out to the cause of wiping out the disciples of Jesus Christ. Not just the 12 guys that we've come to call apostles, but anybody, anyone who is associated with Jesus Christ, he wants them gone. He has this great zeal for that. Now we know that part of that zeal comes from the fact that Paul himself, before his conversion, was a Pharisee. The Pharisees, you know, were those conservative arm of the religious sect. They were the ones that believed in resurrections. They were the ones that stood to the Old Testament letter of the law. They had no variance. They were very strict in what they believed. He was raised under the teaching of Gamel. And so he was very strict. And so he thought in his mind that he needed to do something to wipe out this false religion, this occult, so to speak, in his heart and his mind at this point. And so the Bible says he was continuing to breathe out threats. Well, what threats? Well, if you look back in chapter 8, verse uh, 3, notice it says in verse 8, 3, it says, And as Saul, he, or she has for Saul, rather, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. But now that's not all Paul was doing. Paul was also in favor when they began to vote on killing people. He gave his vote. You read over in Acts 26, he's recanting or retelling us his, his story. He says that even when some were put to death, I cast my lot against them. I cast my vote against them. He was there, we know, when Stephen was stoned. He was the one watching the coats of those who were doing the stoning. So Paul, at this point in the text, he is evil. He is anti-church. He is anti-Jesus Christ. He wants to wipe out the gospel. Isn't that interesting? And so the Bible says he's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And so what does he do? He's motivated, so he goes to the high priest. Notice verse 9. The high priest didn't come to him. He went to the high priest. By the way, historians tell us that the high priest at this time was most likely Caiaphas, the same high priest that we know was the demise of the Lord Jesus Christ and the murder of him. And in verse 2, it says, and he asked letters from them to go to the synagogues of Damascus. Now, there's some debate about going to Damascus. It's about a six-day walk from Jerusalem to Damascus. And so many say, well, Paul would not really have any uh, authority to go to Damascus and pull people out of the synagogues. But when you read some history, you'll find that the magistrate over Damascus was 
uh, one who hated the Romans themselves. And so he sort of had some liberty, gave the Jews some liberty, plus the Roman government. If you remember anything from the trials of Jesus, the Roman governments tried to sort of back off and let the Jews sort of handle their inward religious activity. And so Paul would have official documentation letters that would allow him to go to Damascus and pull people out of the synagogue who said that they were Christians, that they were followers of Jesus. And so by this time, people in the name of Jesus have been growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And the church is becoming a humongous organism for the cause of the gospel. And so we see that Paul wants to go and he wants to drag people out. And listen, it doesn't matter whether they're men or women, if they're of this way. Now this word way is the first time being used in the New Testament here. And it's being used obviously is a reference to Christians who are following the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, Paul is persecuting the church. Now, you have to understand, he's doing that because he's a religious zealot. He is a Pharisee who thinks that these people are blaspheming God, that they're saying there is this new religion to find your way to be right with God outside of the law. And so he thinks he's doing the right thing. But at this point, we know otherwise, right? He's not. So this is Paul's life. This is what Paul's ambition is all about. It it sort of helps you to understand, doesn't it, that when Paul becomes a Christian, why he's such a zealot for the gospel? Because he has that personality, doesn't he? He has that personality that he wants to do the best he can do and no matter what it may be. And so he strives hard to wipe out the church. Then he's going to strive hard to preach the gospel wherever he can in any venue he gets, regardless of the obstacles that are put in his way. And so Paul is a persecutor of the church. Now on his way to Damascus, let me ask you a question before we give the next point. Do you think that Paul's thinking on in his mind, you know, maybe this Jesus thing is real after all. Do you think that Jesus is really this guy who rose from the dead and who is the Messiah to come? Do you think that was in his mind? No, furthest thing from it. As a matter of fact, in his mind is, if I could stab Jesus myself, I'd do it. If there was any way that he was here, I'd re-crucify him because I hate this church. I hate this thing called the way. And I'm gonna do all that I can to snuff it out. Now I say that point because it's very interesting to me that we need to understand that here is Paul going down to Damascus in order to persecute the church, not having on his mind, maybe the possibility is today I'll get saved. Today I'll become a Christian. That's not even on his mind. And in fact, the opposite is on his mind. Now I say that because I don't want to confuse you. I don't want to start any problems. I don't want to cause any dissension. But I want you to understand that God is the initiator of salvation. I want you to understand this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are saved, if you are born again, you have been brought to that place by the initiation of God himself. Amen? And if you don't believe that, all you gotta do is begin to read the beginning of Romans where it says that no man seeks after God. There's not one of us who does. There's not a single person in this room who ever sought after God. But let me tell you something. It's like a a song I I heard lately that I've been listening to called The Real Thing. God's always been running towards you. Amen? 
God has been running towards you. And it's by his grace (laughs) that he's found you and saved you. Amen? And we need to understand that. I didn't save myself. Amen? I didn't make myself a preacher. Because I tell you what, there's a whole lot easier things I could be doing. Amen? But God did that. That's God's work. And so here it is. Look at Paul's conversion. Notice what happens to Paul. So Paul is traveling down the road. Look at verse 3. And it says, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. He's getting close to the place of persecution. He comes to Damascus so that if it were found, he said, yeah, excuse me, so that if he found anyone there, uh, verse three, Mike, that's where I'm at. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. There it is. There's the heavenly light. There is this heavenly light that shone around him. Now, if you read the account in Acts 22 and you read the account in Acts 26, you will find out that this is right smack in the middle of the day. It is noon when this takes place. I want you to think about that. It's noon. Have you ever been outside when it's noon and the sun is clear and how bright it is? Have you ever tried to look at the sun? And if you accidentally look at the sun and you look away, you really can't see much, can you? It's blinded your eyes pretty quickly. Paul says, think about that brightness of that light being just a glimmer. Because here it is in the middle of the day and the Shekinah glory of God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know it's Shekinah glory? Well, my Lord Jesus rose from the dead and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he prayed in John 17 that you know what he was looking forward to? Having the same glory that he had before he left. And so guess what? I believe Jesus got, had the same glory returned to him when he got back. Doesn't mean he didn't have glory while he was here, but he veiled it in flesh. But now he's in heaven, amen? And he has the glory. He returned to that present glory, amen? And so here it is, the glory of Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, comes down and confronts a persecutor of the church right there. And notice what happens in the text. He says, then this light from heaven came and shone all around. And notice the response. Paul knows something heavenly is taking place. And then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I wish I had time to just spend and talk about the church today, but we don't have a whole lot of time to talk about church. But I will take a little bit of time to talk about church. I want you to notice that Jesus was being persecuted through his church. I want you to notice that Jesus does not separate himself from us. I want you to understand something that that we, the local church, the body of Christ, are a part of the body of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand this morning that if somebody messes with the church, they're messing with Jesus. Amen? Amen. I, I want you to understand this morning what that means is, is that the church is all vital and important to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to know so much so that Jesus would have John write down to seven different churches how involved he is in the life of those churches. I want you to understand that because Jesus sees this church as important, we ought to see the church as important. Amen. I want you to understand that if Jesus is going to look into this church on Sunday mornings and see what is taking place, and he's going to authenticate the message that's going to be preached here, then we ought to show up on Sunday morning and we ought to be participating. Amen. You with me? Now I'm preaching to the choir. You're here. Vacation's almost over. Hallelujah. I'd be glad when everybody gets back. About crushed my heart last week when I looked out and saw so many empty pews. 
But the reality is, somehow, some way today, we as the New Testament church supposed to be, we have lost the importance about being here. We have somehow lost the importance that church is vital to the Christian walk. We have lost that somewhere along the way. And so now the statistics tell us that an active church member is somebody who comes twice a month. Let me tell you something. If that's an active church member, we're in sorry shape. Because I'm going to tell you, it only slides downhill from there. And next we'll be called an active church member, somebody who comes once a month. Then it'll be somebody who comes every other month. And, you know, I always joke with my preacher friends, said, you know, if your church is like my church, you got an A, B, and C visit uh, group that comes to the church. You got the A group who's always here. You got the B and C group. They rotate. They take turns coming. But I use this time to help you to understand, listen, the church, listen, in America, let's just talk about America. In America, church used to be where everybody centered life around. Amen. Some of y'all remember those days, right? Church used to be, this used to be the home base, right? You wanted to see somebody, you wanted to fellowship, you went to the church. And so a lot of people went to church. Listen, even people who weren't saved went to the church on Sunday. Why? Because that was the thing to do. But here's the problem. It's not the thing to do because we're Americans and that's our cultural acceptable norm. Because let me tell you what's happened is the church has lost tons and tons of people in their roles. You know why? Because no longer the cultural norm. The cultural norm now is to steer away from church. And so what are we going to do as believers? Well, we're following the cultural norm. We're, we're leaving church. We're not saying church is important anymore. We're going, oh, I got to get up on Sunday and go to church. I worked all week long and I'm tired. Well, I bet you Jesus was a little tired on that cross too. You know what I'm saying? I'm sure Jesus was tired when he was standing through all those mock trials on the night he was betrayed. I'm sure he was tired, but let, let's just throw Jesus out of the mix because he's God. And because he's God, you know, he knew he was going to be doing that. But listen, I can remember when I was a layman, I can remember working 12-hour shifts. And I can remember getting up and going to church. I can remember, hey, I can remember choir practice being at 8 o'clock, Miss Kathy, at night on Wednesday night after prayer meeting that was at 7 and getting home. And I, I can remember when we had two little kids. They were little. We had our boys. And I can remember getting out of choir practice after Emmett had been sleeping on the ground, picking him up, driving through Sonic, getting a 59-cent hamburger, because that's all we could afford, and driving home eating a Sonic hamburger from, for 59 cents on the way home. See, I know what it's like to commit. I know what it's like to sacrifice. You're saying, well, you're a preacher. I wasn't a preacher then. Amen. Now, I know I'm camping a little long here, but hey, I got a crowd and people are listening. So, you know, hey, but the point is, the point is, folks, listen, you're saying you're preaching to the choir. I'm here. I understand it. But here's the point. Continue to be here. Help me share this message. Help us to understand that the church, if you're going to, if Paul is saying, I'm persecuting the church. No, Jesus, I'm not persecuting. Yes, you are. So if the church is vital to the Lord, it ought to be vital to us. Amen. And it's not, listen, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. It's not that I'm just saying, come punch a clock and you're, I mean, I'm happy with you. Or Jesus is happy. That's not about that at all. But you remember what the Hebrew writer said? Do not forsake these something yourselves as the habit of some. We love that as preachers. We love quoting that all the time. But, but it's the point of why. Why do we not forsake the, the, the assembling of ourselves together? Because we spur each other, what? To love and good works. And all the more, why? Because the days are evil. I don't know about you. I need church. I need to be reminded that it's all about loving God and loving people. 
I, I need to be spurred on to do good works. Amen. Because you know what? Sometimes I look at this world and I just want to sit down and say, you know what? It just seems like we're not making a dent. But when we get together, man, it encourages us. It fires us up. Amen. Boy, I'm ready to preach. (laughs) So Paul has this encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, why are you persecuting me? And notice Paul's response. Paul says, (laughs) He says, who are you, Lord? Verse five. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goat? We'll come to that in a minute. He says, trembling and astonished. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? (laughs) So he knows it's some kind of special encounter. He knows that what he thought was not a reality is now a reality. This Jesus who he thought was probably still in a tomb somewhere or was his body stolen by the disciples somewhere because that was the fabrication going around. Somewhere, some way, this, this Jesus is still lying around dead somewhere is now a reality. Think about that. And Paul, being a good Pharisee, could not deny resurrections in his heart because he believed in resurrections. He believed that, that God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so now, what happens? What do you want me to do, Lord? We find that this one who persecuted the church is now on his face before Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And his life is being radically transitioned from being a persecutor to being a prophet, a preacher, a leader in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice Jesus' response to him. Jesus says, and I must hurry because I know I spent a lot of time chasing a rabbit this morning, but he says uh, to him in uh, verse 6, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And then the men who were with him, they journeyed, they heard the speech, uh, because they were speechless, hearing a voice and seeing no one. And so Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. So here he has this living encounter with Jesus. By the way, do you realize that outside of the, when the ascension, there's two people that saw Jesus outside the ascension, and that is Stephen, as he's being stoned, looked up into heaven and said, he sees the Son of God standing, sitting, or standing at the right hand of God, and so he was captured up to be with the Lord. And then here is the, the Lord turning things around. Here is the guy that was consenting to his stoning, now getting to see Jesus. Pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, it's amazing what God does, isn't it? It's amazing how God works. I mean, it's, it's like Paul wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for Paul. And, and in fact, when, when Paul was Saul and he's consenting to the death of Stephen, God knew that down this road to Damascus on the way to put more people to death, to persecute the church even more, that God was going to save him. How, how awesome and radical is God? That's just amazing to me. And so the same Jesus that Stephen saw is the same Jesus that comes down and changes life, the life of Paul, and now he's going to be converted to Christ. How amazing is that? I mean, think about it. This guy who, want, who wanted to go and to bind people is now going to be bound by the love of Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, he wanted to go and kill people, and now he's going to talk about how dead people can come to life through Christ. It's, it's amazing to me that God would do that, you know, because I think about my life. And I think about what I was and where I was. And God, in New Jersey of all places, I told you a hundred million times, you're probably tired of hearing it, but he found me. And uh, he, he would save me. And then, then a little bit later, he would allow me to go and to be a, a, a Southern Baptist preacher. That's just, uh, it's just weird. New Jersey I, and Southern Baptist preacher just don't seem to go together. But here I am, a Southern Baptist preacher in South Alabama. Amen? I mean, it's amazing what God 
will do. And you may be sitting out there saying, can God do that in my life? You betcha he can do that in your life. If God is drawing you, then he can do it. Amen. He wouldn't be drawing you if he couldn't. Amen. Certainly he can. And so the Bible tells us that what he does, and we were going to look at verses um, 10 through 19, but let me just summarize for you. So Paul is led into town, and this is his commissioning because God saved Paul, you know what, for purpose. And Ananias is told that he saved him in order that he would preach the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and not just to poor people, but before kings and magistrates. And so he was going to be a great leader in the church. And so here, Paul is converted, and then in verses 10 through 19, we see his commissioning and his baptism. Paul follows in believers' baptism. Now, to us, and we were talking about baptism in my small group the other night, but to us, you know, baptism just seems like, okay, that's the thing we do on Sunday morning, or we may do it at a swimming pool, and we dunk people under the water, and it becomes sort of an insignificant event. But it was very significant in the life of Paul and the life of the New Testament because you are identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. And I want you to think, you know, baptism in a Muslim country today would be uh, pretty dangerous, amen? Because that means that you are walking away from, uh, you know, being a Muslim to being a Christian and you're putting your life in your own hands because you're identifying with that truth of that message. And so here Paul is identifying with what he hated. Now he's a follower. Now he's a baptized believer in the way. And so God uses this man Ananias to commission him and he lays his hands on him and he's baptized and he receives the Holy Spirit. And what does he do immediately? Immediately what we find him doing is he's hanging out with the folks in Damascus and then the next thing we find him doing is he goes to church the next day at synagogue and he goes to the synagogue and he stands up and he begins to preach the gospel. Can I tell you what happens when you get saved? When you get saved, you want to talk about Jesus. Amen? You want to talk about how he radically changes your life, what he does in your life. And so Paul goes and he begins to preach Jesus in the synagogue. Listen, this is all about amazing grace. Amen? All about amazing grace. Listen, God in his amazing grace will save you. But not only that, listen, he'll commission you. You say, oh, what do you mean? What's this commission thing? Well, this commission thing is all of us, every one of us who comes to faith in Christ, those of us who are saved, born again, bought by the blood of Jesus. God saved you for a work. We love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but we always leave out first 10, where we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Why did God save you? Not just so that you can sit, not just so you can say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, I have fire insurance. No, God saved you in order that you'd be his workmanship, right? That you would work good works that he's called you to do. Every one of us in this room need to ask ourselves, Now that I belong to Jesus, what is it, Jesus, that you want me to do? What is the commission of my life? Well, everyone is commissioned to preach the gospel. He says that right to us. We're great Baptists. We know all about the great commission. We we hang out there quite a bit, right? Matthew 28, Acts 1, 8. We, We camp on the great commission. Go and tell. That's what we do. So every one of us in this room are commissioned to go and preach the gospel. But... What is it specifically in either the life of the church, in the life of your neighborhood, the life of your job? What is your ministry? What is it that God may be calling you to do through you, where you live, 
where you go to work, where you go to school. See, it's not about coming to church, gathering up on a Tuesday night and going and telling a neighborhood about Jesus. It's about us every single day living out the gospel in such a way that when I'm at work, I can tell my co-workers about the love of Jesus and the power of Jesus, his salvation. I can tell my neighbors around me. I can tell folks in the community in which I minister to. That's what we ought to be doing. Amen? I read a book one time. It's called Evangelism Where You Live. (laughs) That's what we want to do. That's what the early church did. They met from house to house breaking bread. Why do you think they met from house to house? Well, they didn't have a big old building like this to gather in, but still, they met from house to house. They began to spread in small groups as they spread in small groups. And if you lead a small group, one of the responsibilities of a small group leader is that you begin to invite unchurched people to your small group saying, well, they don't want to do Bible study. You'd be surprised. They may if you ask them. But then when they come, they get to hear the truth of the gospel. And guess what? Hearing the truth of the gospel, perhaps maybe God will save some. He may not save all, but he'll save some, right? And when God saves some, guess what? Now you have your small group growing in baptisms. Wow, isn't that awesome experience? And listen, in Southern Baptist life, we know Sunday school has been the same ordeal, right? Sunday school has always been the evangelistic arm of the church. We're supposed to invite people to Sunday school. Why? Not just so they'll get Bible study on Sunday morning, but hopefully perhaps through that, we got a good teacher who's teaching the Bible, but then they're also sharing Jesus because just like Spurgeon said, every sermon he ever preached, he always went back to the cross. So every Bible study we ought to teach, we ought to go back to the cross, right? And tell, tell them about Jesus and pray they get saved. Anyway, you get the point. Let's pray together. (laughs) Thank you for listening today. And remember, you can find more information about Pastor Mike and the church at our website, www.fbclp.life.